All right, welcome amazing people to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne. It's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. Today, I'm chatting with Douglas Ferguson, who is an entrepreneur and human-centered technologist with over 20 years of experience. He is the president of Voltage Control, an Austin-based workshop agency that specializes in design sprints and innovation workshops. He recently published his first book, Beyond the Prototype, which offers a six-step plan for companies struggling with the shift from discovery to launch. Could have used that for our startup, actually. Um, Douglas is active in the Austin startup community, where he serves on the board of several nonprofits, mentors startups, and advises early-stage ventures. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to be here. Awesome. I'm going to dive right in. Before we get into your work and, and some of the stuff going on in your life right now, I'd, I'd love to look, know a little bit more about you. And I'll, I'll kick that off with just a, a little bit of a loaded question on, you know, who are you? Like, what, how would you define you as a person? Well, you know, um, it's, uh, I, w- I would say uh, right now I identify as a facilitator um, and speaker and coach these days. And, um, I got my start as, um, a CTO and I still, uh, keep my toe in those waters a bit through advising startups as well as I, I run a, um, a conference every year for CTOs. So still stay, stay in the community. And, um, uh, it's something I still love to do. And, um, and also, uh, voltage control is tech enabled via my background as a CTO. And so, uh, still, sure. still use those skills today, but uh, but definitely uh, doing a lot more facilitation, a lot more thought around how we can transform the way people meet and the way people work together. Well, and I've noticed just doing the research for, uh, for the conversation, there was a lot, especially in the last month or so in your writing, just a lot around effective meetings and people communicating with each other and whatnot. Like, where's all that coming from? You know, it's it's coming from a, a 2020 strategic meeting that we had back at the end of 2019. (laughs) (laughs) It was really, really fascinating. We actually, um, we don't always get to use the tools that, um, on ourselves. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, frankly, a lot of, a lot of them are kind of what I call heavy artillery, you know, um, and it's not something that we need week to week. So it was nice breaking them open and designing a, a workshop for the team. And I know they really enjoyed, actually being participants um, versus having to talk about the stuff or, or run these things. And um, so we came up with a list of things we we're going to say no to. We were really proud about that. And yeah. um, we, we thought about things we wanted to start doing for 2020. And um, a lot of it was really kind of stemmed out of um, how do we think about the work we we're doing in a broader context? Because, um, you know, while if someone has read about a design sprint, wants a design sprint, um, that's pretty easy for people to understand. If they've never heard of a design sprint or aren't sure how these facilitated sessions work, it can be quite confusing. Sure. And so we just kind of took a step back to think about, well, in, in the broader sense, what is it that we do? And, um, and it really is about helping people make better decisions, helping them um, uh, have better meetings. And um, uh, so I think it was really stemmed out of this realization around how much is wasted on um, on ineffective meetings. And, um, and also, um, partially I was somewhat prototyping this maybe without even realizing it because I was starting to talk about some of these things, um, throughout the, um, Q3 and Q4 of last year and some of my speeches and whatnot. Okay. And I just noticed I, the, the, the crowds, the audience has really reacted to this notion of, um, of improving meetings and, and doing the work in the meetings. It's one of my, my, one of our mantras, is uh, do the work in the meeting and people really resonate with that. That's so true. It's funny. I ran into someone the other day in the co-working space that I'm out of and, you know, typical, like, how you doing? Typical response. And he actually showed me his calendar. He's like, well, this is how I'm doing. Just back-to-back meetings. And, 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 the, and the reply after that, though, was at some point I need to do some work, which yeah. so many people, I, I remember when I was in the corporate world, it was the same thing. It's like, and you get into this, this, um, 
this terrible cycle of either you're coming in super early or staying super late or working at home to actually do your job, right? So I love that you guys are focusing on let's get some stuff done in the actual meeting. Yeah, and you know that that's one of our mantras and um a lot of the a lot of the, the mantras that we have um around meetings are um in service of that of that goal. And so we have some some kind of approaches to that anyone can follow to to actually get the work done. One of my favorites is, you know, uh bring a prototype to the meeting. And so often we get together to talk about something and you know, if we actually had a rough draft of that thing or an earlier version of it, then we could all react to it. We could all sure. um, give our opinions on it. And, you know, this is the design sprints designed around this very concept. And I just don't, I don't know why there's no reason why we can't do that in every meeting versus having, you know, reserving that kind of behavior for big design sprints and things. I'd love to talk a little bit about design sprints. I mean, we've, I've had, um, Jake Knapp on the show before, but one of, and for people that are listening, he, he wrote uh, one of the books on design sprints, which is, I think that's the one that you're following. Um, and you know, we didn't talk a ton about it cause we were talking about his latest book, make time. So I, I'd love, here's my question. I'd, I'd love to, if you can just quickly explain, you know, what a, a design sprint looks like. But the question I have is how do you in today's world, get the teams and the companies on board because you know in a nutshell essentially it's a week of full on only that thing and while you're in there you're really doing that task unless I'm uh, unless it's changed but that that was my impression of the process yeah it's a 5 day process where you're going to build and test a prototype and um yeah you kind of ask the the golden question you know this gets asked all the time and my my simple answer is ultimately if someone's really concerned about not having the time then um typically the problem it's not the right problem or not the right time and mm-hmm. um or or the or the company's having trouble prioritizing and yeah. so it, it sometimes we can unravel it oftentimes though if that's the first thing on folks mind it's just not they've heard about the design sprint want to get the results but aren't willing to invest right now or um, there's just something they're looking at it at something too small, too, too myopic. And so sometimes we can help them by just opening the aperture or bringing it back to first principles. Like what is the actual problem we're trying to solve versus like um, being focused on a certain feature or solution. Let's take a step back. And once we start having those level conversations, they start to see, oh, this, this could be really valuable. Um, also, you know, if, if, if folks really take a step back and think about the fact that, Oh, I'm going from meeting to meeting, not getting anything done. And this project has stalled for six months. We've got to do something about this. And they, they see this as new hope there. There's real potential that we can, we can make some change and there's evidence that we've done it in the past. Um, that typically um, tips the scales. I love it. And you know, Douglas, just getting a little into your mind a bit, because when we first chatted, I, re- I remember probably the back half of our conversation was starting to head around just mindfulness and wellness and just health, let's just call it in general. And some of these questions I'd love to ask, because as a facilitator and someone that, you know, is, is in sh- basically trying to run the room, you, like you need such an incredible uh, attention to detail and, and listening skills. And I'd imagine it's got to be almost impossible to do that if your if your own mind is just racing and you know you your your mind's firing all over the place. So I'm curious if there's anything over the years that you've picked up in terms of practices to be able to still your mind and make sure that you're um, personally running kind of at the top of your game to, in order to fac- facilitate these super important uh, sprints and projects. Absolutely, and. You know, I think you had to look at it from a few different vantage points. You have to, you had to take care of the body. Um, you had to take care of the mind and you had to take care of the brain. Yeah. And the body, you know, I think regular exercise is really important. I try to sweat every day. Um, and if I, um, that's one of the reasons I love the fact that the, the, the kind of advertised 
schedule for a design sprint starts at 10. It gives me plenty of time to get up and get my exercise in. <laughs> um, you know, when I'm working with the, with the, with the DOD guys, you know, they want to, they want to start at the crack of dawn and it's kind of hard to get into exercise beforehand. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's super important. And, um, even, even physical things like, you know, one, one kind of, um, here's a little like inside baseball trick for you, um, uh, facilitators and, um, soon to be facilitators out there. Cause I'll tell you one thing, if you, um, if you call a meeting and you haven't hired or, um, or selected a facilitator, you are the facilitator. Um, and so especially for, for for long running, um, workshops, um, like, you know, definitely multi-hour ones. Uh, if you're going to be standing in a room, compression socks, highly recommend it. Um, Hmm. it's a game, it's a game changer. I love it. Yeah. So any of these physical tricks, super important, um, you know, stay fit, get well. And, um, and also, you know, if you're not feeling on your game that day, and you need to you need to sit down more more than you normally would. Just you know, just own it. Just um, just let people know because um, that's part of taking care of your physical, your body as well. Um, the, the the mind, you know, I think no matter if it's um, no matter what kind of meditation you need, um, I highly recommend uh, you know some form of meditation. I prefer active meditation. Um, uh, I like to, you know, be doing something, but allow my mind to, to just shut off. Um, sure. So actually, so what does that look like for you? What's, uh, yeah, I get up really early in the morning. Um, and before my workout, um, I do, uh, I've been practicing Pilates for many, many years. And so I know the machines in and out. And so I can go mm-hmm. and get on the reformer or the tower and do a, and like an hour long flow without thinking, even having to think because it's just second nature. And yeah. so it's different than going and working with a trainer or going to a class where I'm getting pushed physically. Um, it's a, a more stretchy, more fluid movement, um, almost getting into like a, it, it, at times it feels like being like a, a union, um, a single cell organism because, <laughs> yeah. because I'm just getting into the spiral flash fascial type of movement. It's kind of, some people I've even heard some, some Pilates trainers call it, um, fascial flossing, um, and nice. so, and so I can just kind of go in there and a whole hour will evaporate and I hadn't really, you know, just turn my mind off. Um, I liked it a lot better than just sitting still, although I do, I do enjoy the sauna. Um, and, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, That's so a those are, for me. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those are my tricks. Um, in fact, I, I've, I'm a big fan of recovery and, um, there's a place here in Austin called generator athlete lab actually going to be doing a, a talk there on, on Friday, which by the time this comes out, it'll probably be in the past. But um, uh, I go try to make it there once a week and they have um, infrared sauna, which okay. is, um, which is you know, really great for building endurance and, um, and recovery. Uh, and then they also have hot and cold tanks. So I'll do contrast therapy, three minutes in the hot and three minutes in the cold. And um, it's some, you know, you talk about, um, endorphin release you you sit in that 45 degree water for about four <laughs> minutes you know on three cycles and you just i just i just run out of there you know bounding down the <laughs> stairs like a seven-year-old it's, it's amazing <laughs> totally you know the other thing i find because uh, I, I i do it as well um maybe not as cold uh, because i'm doing it at the gym in the shower oh yeah so, so but still i mean it i remember at the, at the beginning doing this just it, taking your breath away type thing and then now I'm, I'm slowly breathing through it um but the the beautiful thing and i've been following uh, wim hoff's me- methods and layering some breathing sometimes at night but the, the biggest thing i find is just not getting sick or, yeah. or getting sick uh a lot less often and, and if not shorter periods of time so it's you know it's amazing because it's I, I thought about it this morning because I don't know anyone that actually wants to go and do it. Like, <laughs> I mean, even this morning when I did, I'm like, ah, I don't really want to do this. But the, the thought that crossed my mind was I'd rather take, you know, a minute here and do this versus being, you know, nailed with a cold of some sort for a week. Right. Mm. Yeah. You know, the, at first the cold tank was like, I mean, it felt like, you know, you have these thoughts going through your head that oh, I'm getting frostbite or like this yeah. feels insane. Am I, am I killing myself? And now it's, uh, I don't know, the, just the breathing and, and the way I feel when I get out. And it's like, I, 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 when I'm traveling or I can't do it, I, I get bummed out, you know? 
Sure. Um, and so I, I, I just love it. It's great. Um, and then, so love that. The, I think the recovery stuff's super important. So that's all kind of physical, a little mental there. Um, and sleep super important. Um, I have, you know, in the past being a software developer, there were, there were, um, weeks at startups where I worked a hundred hours a week. And, um, I since, uh, well, part of, part of it was because I really loved coding, you know, and I would, yeah. I would just like, it was like, it's like trying to figure out a puzzle yeah, and, you're you know, people that get state. addicted. To, yeah, exactly. And I actually wrote an article about, uh, I don't know, two years ago or something about how I, um, I was so good at the flow state that it was actually not good for me as a, as a human. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I had to like regulate that. I had to say, no, I'm going to move on and, 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 and go experiment with leadership and, and working with people and teams because this, this software stuff is, um, it's like, a it's too, too, too alluring or it's like, <laughs> I get, I get just pulled into this, the space that's just not healthy. Um, and so, so definitely, um, the sleep super important and that all as uh, a setup so that when you walk into the room, you are, are in a space that you can be there for others because you've taken care of yourself. Oh, and totally. the thing is, is, um, not only, um, that, that preparation, but also in the moment, um, being in tune with your somatic experience is really important. And that's something we teach in our advanced facilitation class is actually how to tap into that and, and pay attention to it. Because you, a lot of times, like, especially if you're, you, you are any kind of empath on the spectrum, if you have any ability to uh, feel uh, what others are feeling or, or sense the room um, and you walk into a tense room, you're going to somatically experience that. And if you don't acknowledge it for what it is, then it can impact you in negative ways, which then can um, add on to whatever might already be there and things can spiral out of control without before it, things get really noticeably bad before you realize it. Whereas if you have this awareness that you're in a bad mood or awareness that like you felt fine before you walked through the threshold. So what happened at the threshold? Um, so just being in tune with those things and the body can be a great antenna to detect some of these things. But if you're not listening, to, you're not tuned into that antenna, then, um, then that's just another kind of data source that uh, you're just kind of letting go to waste. So, so that's really huge. And it's hard to um, acknowledge that stuff if you haven't practiced it, not aware of it. And also you're not taking care of yourself, then you're not going to even know, um, you're not going to even be able to read those signals because your signals are probably haywire. Totally. Um, well, Cause they're yeah. first, thanks for sharing all of that. Cause you're, you're nailing that essentially the whole reason for this show. And it, there's, there's two main reasons. One to break down, uh, stereotypes on the type of people that have these practices. I mean, I'll just go and say it like the lot, you don't think of software developers or CTOs being, uh, dialed in with Pilates. It's just, that's not the first person you think about. Right. But you know, here you are, you're, you're doing these things. And then obviously there's a host of other practices and, and habits and whatnot you've picked up along the journey that yeah, I say it all the time on the show. It's just all of these things, just they, they heightened your, heighten your self-awareness, right. And people can get to them in so many different ways, but if you can't see or feel what's going on, um, cause it, no matter what it's, it's going on. It's just whether you can see it and, and, and feel it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, which is beautiful when, when you can start seeing this, this stuff. So what, like for you, when did, when did this stuff start to enter your life? Like when, do you remember when you started to, was it that, that moment when you when you pivoted and realized that your flow state was actually, uh, not healthy, which is a really interesting way to, to describe it. And I totally understand that. Or, or were you doing some of these practices even, you know, even when you were working those you know, hundred hour weeks? You know, for me, it's all, it's just been a lifelong journey, I would say, um, because I feel like um, there's always been little things that I've learned at, at kind of pivotal moments. So I can definitely pit, find, point to inflection points, right? And say, sure. well, that was that was a really pivotal moment because this thing I was reacting to this um, external stimulus, uh, or um, or whatnot. But I think that's also coupled with just uh, I've had a lifelong just curiosity and just I'm a constant learner. 
And so always trying to find new things and new ways to do, do things. And, you know, that this, the, the procedural way of thinking that I learned from being a programmer, kind of the systems thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that's why I named the company voltage control because I was patching up my vol- um, I was patching up my synthesizer um, and thinking to myself about how that, that's very similar to what it's like to manage teams and software pro- projects. And because, because there's all these inner um, dependencies and connections that you make between things, these networks, and they have subtle um, ripple effects. And if you change one little thing, it can cascade throughout the whole system. And so, um, which, which is really fascinating because I didn't realize this. I've been a Brian Eno fan for many, many years. And I just recently watched a documentary and, um, um, and found out that early, uh, w- while Brian was still in art school, even before Roxy music, he read a book on, um, cybernetics, which is basically systems thinking. Okay. And, um, and that really influenced how he thought about music and thought about the synthesizer. Um, so it's really amazing that, um, I, I was staring at my synthesizer thinking about how it's the same thing as, as systems thinking, but he read about systems thinking and thought I can apply this to this new, new, uh, instrument. That's just been, um, this new technology, music technology stuff that's starting to happen right now. It's just funny that like kind of came at it from different angles, but it's the same similar conclusion. Um, but I, I think it's definitely more profound for someone like him just to make the leap to, to into this whole new space. But, but, um, but anyway, I, I got tickled when I saw that documentary and, and you know, the systems thinking stuff, how, how it's all related um, got me to thinking, well, this is very similar to how we manage teams and how we work through, through, um, through problems together and, and, and respond to these kind of adaptive systems. And, and so then um then when I was looking for a name for voltage control, it kind of hit me. It's like, okay, cool. Um, the, there it uh, is. yeah. And, and, you know, I kind of like banted it around for a little bit. And then, then I thought to myself, well, voltage is potential energy. And when we think about unleashing potential, that's, that's a really awesome thought. So, um, so that's when it stuck. It makes sense. It's, I, I can't remember who's been talking about this recently, but there basically there's been some discussion around kind of debunking, you know, the whole the 10,000 hours, yeah. Um, example, which I mean, there's there's a there's a place for that, and it, it the the where I read I can't remember the book or the author, but they they were using the uh, example of someone like Tiger Woods versus like a Roger Federer in, in tennis, where a Tiger Woods was like super focused purely on golf, uh, almost in a, an unhealthy way, um. And then you had someone like a Roger Federer that was playing multiple sports and whatnot. And it was the combination of all of those different experiences that, you know, essentially led him to the the, the level of success, success we're seeing now, which is not much different than what, what you're talking about, right? Just other um, experiences fueling what you're working on or what you're passionate on. It, it's just, it all flows into, into a path, right? That you're currently on, for example. Yeah, you know, and bringing it back to the gym gym analogy or the you know the talking the um, fitness stuff. Um, often, when you know, if if someone is training to be a power lifter and they want to increase the amount of weight that they would lift for a deadlift, um, you know, the 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 obvious thought would be, well, let's just do more deadlifts. Let's lift yeah. heavier, heavier and heavier, do more quantity, and then reduce the weight, but lower quantity, and then kind of go back and forth from that until you do more. But um, but actually, the ones that are more effective at getting more gains are the ones that come in um, with these orthogonal um, approaches, right? How, um, can we train the muscles in different ways so they become um, maybe we increase stability by doing um, taking this other tactic? And um, so I've, I've always taken a very diversified approach. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do we, how do we, um, how do we find different ways? Because here's the thing, if you do the same thing over and over and over again, you'll get really good at that one thing, but you're not going to be able to respond to the, the new, the curveballs that get thrown at you. Because what happens is like, um, uh, um, you, you basically carve a rut. You yeah. know, it's sort of like driving down the same path every day. And then if you have to steer out of it, it's going to be really difficult, maybe even more difficult than, than b- before you even built any capability. Cause like now you're so locked into that pattern, you can't repattern. Um, and I, I see that all the time. Um, if I, uh, I'll, I'll bring in folks that are super fit, um, they'll come and box with me 
and they'll they'll fatigue really fast because sure. like there's like some sh- certain shoulder mu- muscles specifically the teres and the serratus that uh you don't work a ton um unless you're doing very specific things but uh really required to stop a punch and to recoil it and so those things start to burn out really fast if you're doing especially if you're doing a lot of repetitive punching um, yeah and uh and so it's just just like uh, just like anything, diversity matters. And, um, and yeah, so, totally. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, did you know that Joseph Pilates was a boxer? No. Yeah. I did not and, know that. Yeah. It's two fascinating things. He, he, part of it was him, um, coming up with things that he could do that wouldn't fatigue him before he would, have, um, have a fight because okay. he wanted to work out. He wanted to have a serious workout that was something that would support him in his fight, but also wouldn't fatigue him um, so that he would be um, completely, um, his stamina would be there um, and he wouldn't have to like not work out the day before a fight. And then also a lot of this stuff was invented, especially the reformer um, for concentration camp victims because he assembled Mm -hmm. the, the reformer out of like hospital beds and stuff. And because there was, the people were so emaciated, they couldn't support themselves. And so how do you create these systems to support people and to do a um, to do a very uh, to do a, a movement that requires a lot of core when they don't have core yet, and guess what? Like this is also you don't have to be a concentration camp victim. You can also be someone who you can be a victim of the modern office chair. Yeah, totally. Which is definitely a thing, right? It now, is a thing for sure. <laughs> well, so speaking of of diversifying, you know, the different things that you're doing in your life. I I definitely want to talk a little bit about the book and how the book came up. I think the the topic of the book I understand, but just as someone that's that's starting to write a book myself right now and just around the space of journaling and, and modern day mental fitness, I mean, that's just not a task that you just pick up and kind of you know, bang out in five minutes. So <laughs> it's 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 a project. And I, I'm curious like what what stimulated um the desire to write the book and, and what did your process look like? How, how was it? So com- coming back to your point around, it's not just something you just bang out. Um, well, I think it was Stephen King that said, writing's easy. You just had to sit down and bleed. <laughs> exactly. I was and like, so, where are they going with this? Yeah. <laughs> you just say, I just banged it out. <laughs> We're ending here. <laughs> well, you know, so there's some truth to that. You know, you, sometimes you don't feel like doing it. I heard this really piece of great advice, which was never in, uh, like a lot of times you want to get to a sense of closure before you get up and walk away. Mm -hmm. But if you, um, so actually working within time constraints is really helpful because if, if you hit the, if you hit, if you say, I'm going to, I'm going to write till three o'clock and three o'clock hits and you get up and walk away, um, you, you might not have gotten to a sense of closure. Um, but, um, if you, if you're consistent, when you sit down later that day or the next day to, to, to write again, you'll remember where you left off. Like there's sure. like generally not a, that's generally not a problem that you stopped. Or maybe, um, if you do hit the, hit the, um, you might leave some notes for yourself, but you don't, you don't finish it. The reason why is if you come back after finishing, now you have to generate a brand new thread, a brand new thought. And so if you can, if you leave something, that thread for you to kind of pick up on, um, when you get, come back, that can be really powerful. Um, and, um, uh, cause like the juices are flowing probably, um, in in that moment when, um, the day before. Right. And so that's really great. Um, also, I mean, in some ways I did really bang it out, um, because I, um, I'm actually working on a, on a second book, which was technically the first book, but, um, (laughs) Karen Hulst and I are working on this together and we decided we didn't want to go the conventional route of a publisher. We were going to go the self-published route, but we were going to be real intentional about it. We weren't going to treat it like, Oh, this is a business card or I'm, I'm this like used car salesman type consultant. That's just going to make this thing just to kind of, um, to get my foot in the door with yeah, clients. Yeah. I really have something to say. I want to put it out there, but we're going to, we're just going to like really make a quality product, but, but run it like a business. Um, and because we looked in just, just the nature of how the industry is shifting and how first time authors typically are treated. And, um, and also we weren't really interested in writing a proposal. We wanted to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so we just got after it. Um, but there's something in the back of my head was kept telling me like, man, 
how many mistakes are we going to make trying to go through this self-publishing process? And I was like, thought to, uh, why, maybe I should just go through that. I'd learned so much about how it all works. And, um, and so, so I started thinking, well, what would I write about? And then I thought to myself, um, well, there's, um, there's this thing I've been seeing with a lot of our clients where they get, they get stuck. And, you know, when we're calling to do our 90 day check-in and, um, and just seeing how, how folks are doing, there's this trend where, you know, they built a lot of momentum and then they got stuck. And so I really wanted to write about this design, what I call the design sprint slump. Um, and, and then as I started to write about it, um, I started to realize that um, it wasn't really limited um, to just design sprints. Um, the worst, the worst offender is, um, hackathons, but a lot of that has to do with just the, the, um, lack of efficacy of hackathons. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but still, I mean, if there's any juice that comes out of it, like it's really hard to, to harness that. And, um, so that's really what this is about. It's about how, um, out of these ideation sessions, out of, out of, the, um, out of these kind of exploration moments, how do we make sure we can get stuff through to the finish line? And, and so I started working on it um, and, and evolving it more. And it started ballooning into something much bigger than I had anticipated because um, it was really meant to be a prototype that I could, uh, that my client, that I felt like my clients could find useful and that I could learn how Amazon's KDP system works. And um, at some point I had to just say, okay, enough is enough. Like, this this can become much bigger, but I need to get back to the other book. Um, oh, I'm just okay. gonna I'm just gonna finish this and get it out, and and so I did, and um, and now I've got a publisher who's interested, um, and so we're gonna crack it open and uh, put in some of the stuff we left out, and um, and just uh, and maybe I give it a little t- um, um, a little tender loving care, you know, just um, yeah. fix up some things. Excited about that. That's um, we got a meeting later today about that actually. And, um, but the thing I will say is I treated this quite a bit differently than most projects. Cause, uh, and I think I drove the editor crazy because, um, uh, typically books are written in a very linear fashion, very waterfall, you know, their phases. Sure. And I just started everything from day one. So I had my, <laughs> um, I had, uh, test readers in pretty early. I had, uh, my, my designer in really early getting ideas flowing and whatnot. And so I treated it more like a, um, an iterative lean kind of, uh, software development project. And, um, it wasn't necessarily the, 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 uh, the most like inefficient or most efficient at times for people's time, but it compressed the overall time. Like the book was done, um, fairly quickly considering like if we had actually done it serially. So we just mm-hmm. parallelized a lot of things. And, um, uh, so anyway, that, that, I think that was a little novel in some ways. And, um, I, I really enjoyed the experience and learned a lot. And so we'll be applying those lessons as we launch the, this next book in March. Well, it's interesting that I, I'm curious to hear, like once you go through this next process, um, having gone through the, the self-publishing through Amazon and then now potentially having a publisher on board, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, your contrasting views on, on both setups. Would you, would you have changed anything as of now? Like, would you, would you do the same thing and go self? Cause I, I'm, I'm asking you selfishly cause there's people are introducing me some potential publishers, but I, like, I really don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm getting it out of my head right now. I'm still very early on, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think maybe I would have, um, uh, the one thing I would have changed is to bring an editor on earlier. Okay. Um, uh, and the, cause I didn't realize there was a difference between a structural editor and a copy editor. So I would have definitely, (laughs) yeah. So a structural (laughs) editor is the person, typically the editor is the structural editor. And then anyone who's looking for grammar and just the, the, that final polish and shine that's, they refer to as copy editor. Um, and then sometimes a copy editor will also do your formatting. Um, and sometimes they're also triple as your indexer if you have an index. Um, Mm. but your editor is really doing structural editing, which is, which they're helping you with the outline. They're helping you identify if you're saying stuff in a way that might not, um, that maybe you could broaden slightly so you could hit a wider audience. Um, they're helping you stay true to your audience. 
Um, yeah. and they're helping you think about like, does this story belong here or should we move it somewhere else or helping you think through like, should we be using a double helix type of structure or some other type of, um, uh, kind of story binding structure? Uh, are, are we, are we using the same story throughout to, to, to make connections back to some kind of broader theme? So they can be really helpful even in your initial outline. Hmm. So I'm curious, just this whole, and thank you for sharing that. Super helpful uh, on my side personally, but just going through that process, um, other than the the final output, obviously, which is is very linked to your work. Do you do you feel like you've picked up anything or anything that kind of you know cascaded over the over the walls to help you in your day to day work and the way you're you're running certain things? Just going through this this completely different process. Gosh, you know, that's a great question. Um, I hadn't really sat and thought about it. Uh, the answer has to be yes. I think um, everything influences like the next day that follows. Sure. Because um, I'm all, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an adapter, you know, I'm a, I'm definitely a chameleon. Um, I, uh, and, you know, definitely a believer in the fact that nothing changes um, or, you know, um, nothing's consistent except for change. Sure. Right. And sure. so, and I just loved, I'm kind of a, I even wrote this blog post about being a change junkie and, uh, <laughs> and that's why I don't like getting in companies or in places where there's just a lot like, um, stagnation, you know? Yeah. I, I, and in fact, when I started to map, not that long ago, I mapped out my career and realized I, I was always joining companies at these inflection points. Okay. And like help them through these inflection points because they were needing some change. And I helped them manage change and help them like, uh, like grow through that change and think about how we, how we adapt as a company to, to deal with that change. And then as stuff plateaus out for any consistent amount of time, that's where I get bored and, sure. um, and I'm not feeling fulfilled. And so, um, so yeah, the, um, gosh, um, so I don't know if I've pinpointed anything specifically through the writing process, but there has to be stuff because sure. um, I'm always learning and, 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 and employing stuff. Um, maybe, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally fine. I don't want to put you on the spot. If anything, it, it, you know, a question to think about down the road since you, you do love these overlapping uh, projects and whatnot and, and, and uh, like kind of the spillover, um, but yeah, I mean, you don't. Have, I'm not gonna hold you. Well, to I mean, you know, every day is a is a tough one, but certainly it's influenced how we're working on this next book. In sure. fact, the editor that I found for that prototype project, because um, Karen and I were struggling on selecting an editor, and because it was just me, and I was it was just a prototype, so it was low risk. Um, then um, I could just make executive decisions, and I was just moving fast and trying things. And I found this amazing editor. And once I was done with it, I said, Karen, um, Kelly's great. Um, we should, we should try her out. And then Kelly and then Karen loved her. And so, you know, um, so definitely that prototype really influenced, um, the writing process for start within. Then I'll also say that, um, it was around that time that I was starting to really talk a ton about prototypes. And so I don't know if it was the act of prototyping the book or just the fact that I was talking about it more. And so the more I was talking and the more I was making it part of like my brand, maybe um, it was, uh, uh, they kind of evolved at the same time, but I've, I've found that I've started prototyping more things and anything mm -hmm. that we do as a company or anything that I do, I, I, I'm questioning myself, like what's the cheapest way we can, we can um, accomplish this. And, you know, for years I had as a CTO, I had this like, um, uh, mantra around economical software and people okay. talk about MVPs. And I think sometimes that um, it's, that has the danger of like, like they're still thinking about it as this like packaged unit, right. Where it's like, okay, what, what all can we jam in or how much stuff we can we jam in or how much stuff can we not do? It's like, depending on whatever you're looking at it, it's like what's on the ship or not. And instead yeah. I felt like a more healthy kind of way to think about it. And, and maybe in the, in the true spirit of Eric's in, notion of an MVP was just economical software. 
So how can we be as economical as possible, but still get the results we need? And so, and, and the results could still be wowing the customer. Cause a lot of people talk about, well, the MVP has a real risk of like, you know, not doing the things that will surprise and delight. And it's like, well, if you, if that's a goal of yours, you're still going to do it. Right. But, um, so it's like, not what's minimally viable, but like, how can we just, no matter what we do, make sure we're being economical and being um, careful and, um, just paying attention to the dollars and cents. I think it's just smart. It's just, it's a great question and it's just, it's just smart. So on, you know, on the top of questions, I definitely want to get, whether they're business related or personal related, just a few uh, journaling prompts that mm. the listeners can uh, leave with, whether there's a two or three. Um, and these I'll keep in the show notes, obviously, so people can take a look. But just any questions that either show up frequently in your life that you take time and you, it doesn't necessarily mean you're journaling. It could be you're thinking about them like, for me, dropping every definition of journaling is probably the best thing we can do um, because it's just reflection. So yep. really any of these type of questions, um, let me know um, what they may be. Um, yeah, it was hard to pick just three. So, um, uh, uh, well, let me just say this too. Um, I like that you were saying, you know, drop the definition of journaling is we, we believe that reflection and retro is super important in so many contexts, whether it's um, you finished a project and the team needs to think about how things went. And I, that's why I don't love the term postmortem because that assumes something went bad, yeah, something that's died. That's and, a good um, point. We should be doing them even when, when we succeed because most of the time when we succeed, it was um, despite all our efforts. Mm-hmm. And so we need to talk about like those things that could have gone wrong or how we slipped by and, and make sure we correct those even in success. Um, and then and even in workshops, we always end workshops with some kind of closer, some sort of reflection. And, and then if it's a skill building workshop, we, we program those throughout the day because um, there's a certain there's only a certain amount of information people can take in without having time to process. And um, the same goes with um, with your day. Um, and just because uh, if you're like me and you're a lifelong learner and you're picking stuff up throughout the day, you also need to take time throughout the day to think about what happened and what that means and synthesize, um, and process that information. And if you don't take the time to do that, then it's not, you can't, it's not going to make that jump from short term to long term. You're not going to be able to think about what, um, how to apply meaning to it and what, and what you might do about it. So the, the whole reason people try to record their dreams because your subconscious is doing a lot of this stuff for you, but, um, but you can, you, I wouldn't just limit it to the dreams or even just one at one time a day. In fact, I have, um, I have chunks on my schedule uh, reserved where my admin can't book meetings and okay. that that's entirely for me to just step back and think about what happened in the, in the prior, the prior chunk of the day. Um, and just let myself kind of let it sink in, um, so typically I'm asking myself a, a lot, like, um, sure. The, uh, a few things uh, that I jotted down. One is what am I missing? Yeah. Like that. because, um, I think that that can, I see that, uh, a lot because, you know, there's different kinds of assumptions, you know, assumptions that we hold where we hold something to be true and it's not, or assumptions around the fact that we, we see the whole picture. Um, and when you look at, like anytime someone's been disrupted, it's because they didn't see it coming. And a lot of times there are signs there. Right. Um, and so especially if, um, I, I try to ask myself that if someone's really passionate about something, but I think it's stupid, it's like, well, why, why are they so passionate about this? Like, what am I missing? I love that. That's a great way to break up that, that thought process. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I don't know, just being in tune of, it's just healthy to ask yourself that often and think about um, um, where you might be, where you might have the blinders on. It's like once the, uh, uh, especially if someone's trying to convince you of something and you're not mm-hmm. having it, it's like, mm, why am I, why am I really not receptive to this? Is it, is it really fact or, or, um, or, or is, there, or is there something else there? Yeah. Um, another thing that I think is, is off really powerful and it, and it's somewhat related to my the the point I made earlier around the, us making that no list during our quarterly our um, twenty twenty planning, and uh, this is like what should I stop doing? Yeah, because if you don't ask that question, it's so easy to just flip into autopilot, and it just keeps packing in. 
right? And then next thing you know, it's like the, whatever it is, the thing, their project, or even the, um, even just the, the, the thoughts or perceptions or whatever you may f- have for something, it just, it just packs in and then you, you just don't notice it anymore. It's a great question. Yeah. And there's, we have a, there's a cool activity um, that we love to run called, um, Triz and it's, um, it's a tool for identifying counterproductive behavior so that you can stop doing it. And the team can agree to like, we're not going to do these things because they're actually prohibiting us from accomplishing (laughs) the things we were trying to do. And a lot of times this stuff comes out of ritual or it's something that we always have done and we, we're not, we don't even second guessing it. And if you take a look back, if you could step back, you realize like, wow, that's like really not helping. It's actually, you know, detriment. And, um, and if you can create space for people to like kill these sacred cows, then, then they will. And then, um, and then we can uh, create space when, and then innovation typically rushes in to fill that space. Well said. Um, yeah, the other thing, it's kind of similar, but a little bit different. Um, and this is more around what can I delegate or what can I automate? And especially being a software developer um, and training, I, um, um, I'm often and throughout you know, my time at Voltage Control just trying to find, look, see things that I'm doing that are repetitive um, that, um, or even someone on the team is doing that's repetitive that we can, um, that we could build some software or, you know, create a zap or, or something like that, that will, um, that will kind of automate that thing. Because if we can mar- work smarter, then we can get more, um, more real work done. Um, and, uh, uh, also I'll leave you with two others Yeah, please. Um, because you said three, but like, I was thinking about these two others and one was, um, how can I tell a better story? I'm glad you, I, I'm glad you pushed past three. This is good. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, cause I don't know. I think that that's one of the things from, from beyond the prototype is it's super important to think about the narrative and we create the shared story and, and how we rehearse them. And, um, cause like, I don't, honestly, when I hear back from, uh, from a client, um, how it went, um, especially if they weren't in the workshop, you know, like a CEO hires me, but then his teams in, in, the, in the workshop and then afterwards, um, I'm, I'm checking in with her and she tells me that, um, that, uh, yeah, the team said they had a lot of fun. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we really missed an opportunity to share some real outcomes, but if yeah. they don't talk about the narrative, then, um, they're going to go to a space of emotion, right? Because it is fun. It is energizing, yeah. but, um, we need to make sure that we prepare things, um, and talk about what happened in the context of the outcomes and, and so that they, they kind of, when they're caught off guard, they already have something ready to roll. Um, and it's not about being disingenuous. It's just about being prepared. Sure. Um, and then the other thing is, um, it, it'll create consistency. So we all, we all don't come out with slightly different messages because sometimes they can sound very different even if it's only slightly different, if our rhetoric is different enough, it can be very confusing to people that weren't there. Uh, so that's really important. Um, well, it's what I love about this question though. I mean, th- so that's definitely the, like the business setting uh, side of it, which is is super powerful, but there's also, because we're, we're filled with narratives and stories just on, on everything. So even, even answering that question from a personal standpoint, like what's, what's my story? What am I tell like, what am I telling myself about who mm-hmm. I am and what my story is? Um, yes. so it's a super versatile question. I love it. Yeah. And then my last one was, um, and I think you're really going to like this one. Um, it was someone crafted for you. Um, I want to ask myself, and this is something I've been uh, playing with because, um, when you ask someone nowadays, how they're doing or how are you or what's new, what's the most common response? Busy. Yes. And so my question, my prompt for for you and all and and all the listeners are, um, how can I not say I'm busy? Yeah, totally. That's that's a good one. So I've been thinking about this for a bit, and I think the easiest word that you can sub for busy is productive. Sure. <laughs> so if you if that's what you really mean, if that's what you want to say. That's so much more meaningful than busy. So if you uh, so if you just swap that word out, I think it'll 
raise some eyebrows and maybe communicate a state. Because the last thing we want to communicate is a state of uh, franticness. Well, yeah, and and it just it just stimulates more of it. That's that's yeah. the other thing, right? It's almost like an affirmation to yourself. Um, you know, what? my father in law actually answers that question in in probably one of the most unique ways, and it always strikes a a, a response. And he just, you know, someone will ask him how he's doing. And he's I'm hundred <laughs> percent, and <laughs> you know, and usually it takes people back, right? First of all, hundred percent. Okay. That's great. And, but it just shifts the, the whole narrative or the whole, you know, frame of that, that question or conversation. So, uh, I love it. I love it. We, yeah, we, we've got to get rid of the busy. Absolutely. You know, here, here's one for you. Um, so someone asked me how I'm doing. How you doing? Living the dream. Yeah, exactly. That's a good one. Totally. Well, it, and again, it just, it, it sparks, it brings the humor, but it, it brings another level of conversation that goes, that A is different and B that is probably going to leave you feeling good, which absolutely, which is awesome. Um, well, I mean, I can't think like usually my last question, it's actually related to this and, and really it is, you know, all said and done work aside, everything you're doing, like what really makes you smile or what lights you up every day? Gosh. Um, I mean, really, it's the fact that I've been able to just work with such great people these days. And um, and when I say work, I mean, whether it's the practitioners I've found um, through um, uh, functional range systems, uh, my boxing instructor, my Pilates folks, um, the the team I built at Voltage Control, these amazing people that are like yourself that are running podcasts that I get to be on. I've just found myself in these situations more and more as time goes by that um, where I get to meet and interact with amazing humans. And, um, and I just find that really exciting. Love it. Well, I really enjoyed this and I can't thank you enough for carving out a bit of time in your day to have this conversation. Great prompts, great practices, love your perspective and excited to see the, the next version of the book. So thank you. Yeah, thank you.